Welcome to wow. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna be a good one. Glad you're here. I love it. Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Karen Hinson, and I am here with my co-host, Nathan Wagdon. What up, what up? You know, we're lucky today. You want to know why? Well, I mean, we're lucky lots and lots, but why are we lucky today? Because somebody is joining us in the studio. Back with Wait, us today. Wait, who is it? Is there somebody else in here with us? He's a mess. Back with us today is our friend, <laughs> Bo Bishop. Hello. Hello. What's up, Bo? How are you? Thanks for joining us, man. Glad to be here. Bo is on our apologetics team, serves with me on the Great Questions team, and is a super smart guy. So we were like, come on, Bo, come in this room and make us smarter. I don't know about that, but I'm glad to be here. Hey, it's all good, man. Well, today we are going to finish our conversation with Dr. Craig on the resurrection. So you guys enjoy this episode. We're back this week with Dr. William Lane Craig, philosopher and Christian theologian, and uh, the founder and head of Reasonable Faith. So if you guys know anything about Reasonable Faith, I would definitely encourage you guys to go check out their podcast. Do you guys release those once a week? Is that right, Dr. Craig? Yes, actually, we have several podcasts that we do weekly. There's Reasonable Faith, which is a kind of conversational uh, radio-style show that I do with Kevin Harris. Then there is our Defenders podcast, which is my uh, Sunday school class on Christian doctrine and apologetics. And then we've just started a new weekly podcast called In the Arena, which rebroadcasts uh, my various debates on university campuses with atheists, agnostics, and other non-believers. To translate that, he has a lot of resources that, that you can go check out. So we definitely would encourage you to do that. So welcome back, Dr. Craig. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Picking up from last week, we ended the conversation talking about the three facts that everybody has to deal with when they come to the issue of the resurrection of Jesus. The first one is that some of Jesus's followers, women, discovered that the tomb was empty. And the second one is that Jesus's followers experienced some kind of appearance of Jesus after the resurrection. And then the third one is that Jesus's followers suddenly and sincerely believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead. So um, that kind of sets us up to where we are now. But Bill, I'll just pitch it over to you and just ask, how do you responsibly handle those facts? Well, historians have a number of criteria that they use in weighing the various explanatory options that are in the pool of live options for explaining a set of facts. And these would include things like the explanatory scope of the hypothesis. Does it explain all of the available evidence? Secondly, it would include the explanatory power of the hypothesis. Does it explain the facts of the matter well? Another one would be the plausibility of the hypothesis. Um, Is it plausible in light of uh, what we know generally um, from other sources of information? Another would be, is it ad hoc? That is to say, is it just contrived or, or made up to fit the situation? Or is it uh, consistent with what we have evidence for, uh, other than the facts to be explained? So those would be some of the various criteria that historians would use. And what I do is apply these criteria to various 
alternative explanations and try to show that the best explanation, the one that passes the criteria best of all, is the one that the original disciples gave, namely that God raised Jesus from the dead. Great. So historians and skeptics might also try to put forward naturalistic theories, that is, um, theories that aren't uh, supernatural in nature, but rather more physical explanations that might be possible hypothesis. So um, yes. let's walk through some of those. I know that um, one of them is this conspiracy theory. Could you maybe tell us what that is and then what sure. some of the problems might be with that view? This was the very first counter-explanation proposed for the evidence. You find it in the pages of the New Testament itself. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Jewish leadership uh, spreads the rumor that the disciples came by night and stole away Jesus' body. And that is uh, the explanation for the empty tomb. This hypothesis was revived in the late 17th century by European deists who tried to explain the resurrection as a conspiracy by the original disciples. They stole the body. They lied about the resurrection appearances, and so the uh, resurrection in Christianity turned out to be the greatest hoax in history. And why does that not have the type of explanatory scope and power as an actual physical bodily resurrection? Well, there are a couple of problems with it um, in terms of its plausibility. For one thing, the theory is totally anachronistic. It looks at the disciple situation through the rearview mirror of 2,000 years of Christian history and projects back onto these first disciples' beliefs about the resurrection of Jesus. Instead of putting oneself in the shoes of a first century Jew who was following the Messiah who got himself crucified by the Romans. For a first century Jew, the crucifixion of Jesus destroyed any hope that these men might have had that Jesus was the Messiah. Messiah was supposed to be a warrior king who would conquer the enemies of Israel, and in this case that meant Rome, and reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem. He was not supposed to be humiliatingly defeated and executed by his enemies. Moreover, there was simply no connection between Messiah and resurrection from the dead. Yes. For a Jew, the resurrection of the dead was an event after the end of the world on Judgment Day when people would be raised from the dead and judged by God. It was not connected in any way with the Messiah and was never an event of an isolated individual within history. So the idea of formulating a conspiracy to steal the body and lie about the resurrection of Jesus is just completely anachronistic for the situation of a first century uh, Jew. Somebody from a naturalistic viewpoint might say something like, well, I agree that Jesus is like some sort of uh, exorcist or magician or something like that. And so his followers see him do these kind of parlor tricks throughout his ministry. Why would they not go steal his body to continue this belief that, hey, he was a he was a miracle worker in life, and now look at what he's done 
in death. And I think you started to get after it with the fact that Jews would have seen resurrection as an end time event, the day of the Lord kind of thing, versus a Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead or something like that. Yes, I, I think that the answer that I gave to the previous question is the same for this question. It's, it's completely anachronistic to think that first century Jews would do such a thing. The crucifixion spelled the end of any hope that they had that this miracle worker and exorcist might have been the Messiah. And uh, there was no connection between being the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead was an event that occurred after the end of the world, not within history, never of an isolated individual. And so what the original Jewish followers of Jesus would most likely have done following his crucifixion, if this much even, if they didn't just go home in despair, would have been simply to make the tomb of Jesus into a shrine where his bones could reside until the resurrection on the judgment day when they could be reunited with him in the kingdom of God. But they wouldn't have come up with this un-Jewish and outlandish idea that he was already risen from the dead. Yeah, and the difference between the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus comes back to life, but then he dies again. And what we see in the Gospels is a resurrection of Jesus to a different type of body that is a, a glorified body. Sometimes people use that language. Yes, that's correct. We, we should distinguish in Judaism between what can be called a revivification and a resurrection, properly so called. Uh, Jesus brought people back to life during his ministry, they were revived, but they, as you say, returned to the earthly life. They would die again. In Jewish thinking, a resurrection properly so-called involves the transformation of this mortal, corruptible body to immortality, glory, and eternal life. Uh, and therefore, it is uh, worlds apart from a mere revivification. Okay, so moving on to another potential hypothesis. What about the theory that Jesus didn't really die on the cross? He was somehow unconscious or incapacitated, but later revived in the tomb and somehow escaped. He didn't actually die. What would be wrong with that view? This uh, hypothesis was floated in the early 19th century by German rationalists who proposed that Jesus was taken down from the cross alive and then somehow convinced the disciples he was risen from the dead. I think one of the great merits of Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, is that it made so vivid to viewers the extent of Jesus' tortures and crucifixion it would have been medically impossible for Jesus of Nazareth to have gone through what he did and not to have perished on the cross. The Roman executioners were professional executioners. They knew how to ensure that victims were dead. Because the moment of death at crucifixion is not always obvious, as the person hangs there apparently lifelessly, uh, they would take a spear and plunge it into the heart of the crucified victim to ensure his death. And the Gospels actually include this detail with respect to Jesus. And in any case, even if Jesus somehow were still alive when he was taken down and sealed in the tomb, he would have died of exposure without immediate medical 
care uh, and attention. And again, even if somehow he got out of the tomb and presented himself to the disciples desperately in need of bandaging and medical care, <laughs> that would hardly have elicited them the belief that he's the conqueror of death yeah, totally. and the risen Lord. Uh, they would have just thought, wow, he somehow escaped the executioner, and that, that's all. He's going to have to have some like Wolverine, like self-healing powers or something <laughs> like that. Be like an X-Man or something. Hmm, yeah, which is another supernaturalistic explanation. <laughs> Obviously, another common theory is that these disciples, they just basically, they hallucinated. They had some yeah. kind of group hallucination where they, or vision, they, they thought they saw Christ. Uh, maybe, you know, they had psychologically were desperate to, to, not have this movement be uh, be ended, and so they just they hallucinated um, seeing him. So, so what what are your thoughts about this view? Yeah, the other two theories that we mentioned, the conspiracy theory and the apparent death theory, have no contemporary defenders. These uh, hypotheses have been dead now for a century or more, but there are still scholars who will defend the hallucination hypothesis. And I think that there are at least three weaknesses of this hypothesis that deserve to be mentioned. First of all, is that the resurrection appearances have no analogy in the psychological casebooks. Jesus did not just appear to one person, but to many persons. He didn't appear just one time, but several times. He didn't appear only to individuals, but also to groups of people. Yeah, that's good. He didn't appear only to believers, but also to skeptics and even unbelievers. Yeah. There is nothing in the psychological casebooks about hallucinations that is comparable to these resurrection appearances. In order to find parallels to them, you have to cobble together independent hallucinatory experiences and build a kind of composite picture, um, which only shows that the Postmortem appearances of Jesus are without parallel in the case books of psychology concerning hallucinations. Secondly, even if the disciples had hallucinated visions of Jesus, it wouldn't have led to belief in his resurrection. As I explained earlier, for first century Jews, the resurrection was not an event of history. It was an event that was after the end of the world, on the judgment day when God would raise everyone from the dead for the purposes of judgment. And therefore, seeing visions of Jesus alive would have led the disciples at most to proclaim that he had been assumed into heaven on the model of Elijah or Enoch, who were taken up alive into heaven. And in this case, Jesus would have been assumed into heaven, and there he appeared to them in glory. And that would not have led to the proclamation of his resurrection. Again, for Jewish thinking, an assumption into heaven is a different category than the resurrection of the dead. Mm -hmm. And finally, this hypothesis has nothing to explain the empty tomb. It tries to explain the appearances, but it doesn't explain the empty tomb. In order to explain that, you have to conjoin an independent hypothesis to the hallucination hypothesis, in, in which case, the resurrection hypothesis is the simpler hypothesis and therefore to be preferred. It also seems to me, Bill, that uh, an, a hallucination is a 
something that happens only from a first person perspective. I mean, uh, I don't know much about the literature, but it would seem pretty straight. It's sort of like a dream, you know, it'd be, it'd be sort of mm-hmm. odd if I came into the studio and said, wow, wasn't that a crazy dream we had last night? You know? <laughs> right. Well, because a hallucination is a projection of the mind, it is a pro- private experience. There cannot be literally, therefore, group hallucinations. Now, what there can be would be situations of mass hysteria, where, for example, several people might believe that they've seen a vision of Mary. Uh, they're not literally seeing the same vision, but they could all be hallucinating simultaneously their own vision of Mary, for example. But as I say, uh, these kinds of experiences are very rare, and there's nothing in the case books about hallucinations. Uh, that would be comparable to these resurrection appearances. Right. So we've covered a lot of different potential theories, and we've knocked holes sort of in all all of them. So you know, we're sort of left with the view that best explains the resurrection, that Jesus actually physically and bodily rose from the dead. And so why would someone sort of try to avoid the seemingly obvious explanation at this point, do you think? Do you think there's a a bias against the supernatural explanation? And what are your what are your thoughts about that? Oh, I think that's very clear. The main stumbling block in accepting the belief in Jesus' resurrection is that it involves a, a miracle. Um, it requires you to say that there is a supernatural cause. And many scholars, many historians simply aren't willing to take that step, even if in their personal lives they would be willing to take that step, they will say that as an historian, that is to say, in their professional capacity, they cannot make such an inference to a supernatural cause. And so they will simply be left with agnosticism about the resurrection. And so I would say that for those scholars who do not believe in Jesus' resurrection, they don't adopt one of these other counter-naturalistic explanations we've talked about. The typical response of scholars who do not believe in the resurrection will be simply to say, I don't know what happened. Something remarkable happened, but I don't know what it was. Mm, That is so interesting to hear. So for our listeners, I'm going to do just a recap of what we've talked about in this episode. So we have talked about all these hypotheses that could explain the facts of the empty tomb Jesus, his appearances to all these people and the fact that the disciples believed deeply in the resurrection. And so the first theory was the conspiracy theory that the disciples stole Christ's body from the tomb. And your explanation was, hey, the the crucifixion, his death, it crushed them. It would not have been in their right mind to go and steal his body because that crushed their hope that Jesus was actually their savior, their Messiah. And so the disciples wouldn't have done that. The second theory was that Jesus didn't really die, that he was taken from the cross alive. And what you said is that, hey, it was medically impossible for him to have lived through those events. And then the last was that the disciples, they hallucinated the whole thing. And your explanation was, hey, he appeared to single people, to to groups of people, to believers, to unbelievers. And a vision of Jesus, even if that was the case, it wouldn't lead them to believe in the resurrection. And so your your stance is that, hey, the resurrection explains all all the facts, it explains them really, really well, and it's the most plausible 
and people just reject it because they're afraid of the supernatural. They they don't accept that there is a God, even though the resurrection is the best explanation of all of these events. That's a great summary. I've heard uh, Gary Habermas say that when faced with the facts, just like we've gone through and Karen just summarized, that a lot of skeptical people will look at it and ultimately not make a decision based on the facts, but either based on their presupposition or their social pressure of the camp, quote unquote, that they fit in, or just some sort of emotional bias that they have against either the Christian worldview or, or frankly, what the resurrection would mean if it was true. What have you found as you've interacted with people around this? Well, as a professional philosopher, I try to avoid psychoanalyzing my opponents, frankly. I'm interested in the reasons that they give for their skepticism, but I don't like to try to attribute to them hidden motivations or what's really driving them. I mean, it it could be any number of things psychologically, um, just insofar as people resist the resurrection because it involves supernaturalism. Here, I find it really helpful to take a step backwards and review the arguments and evidence for the existence of God. Mm. Because the belief in the resurrection of Jesus would be vastly easier if you already live in a universe in which God exists. And so I think establishing first the existence of God is a kind of preamble for helping people to make that inference to a supernatural cause of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, so you move people from atheism, you help them move toward theism, and then from theism to consider the central claims of the gospel. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, that's good. I think the the last thing I would want to run past you as our time is running short is, what does all this mean? If there really was a man who lived a couple thousand years ago, made pretty incredible claims about himself, was doing even more incredible things, and then ultimately is a resurrected following crucifixion of, as a common criminal under the Romans, if all the facts point to that, and we believe that that actually historically happened, I mean, there was a guy that was dead, and then he was not dead. And not only was he not dead, but he was resurrected to uh, this glorified state What does that mean for us? What are the implications of the resurrection? I think that the resurrection of Jesus is of such decisive importance because it wasn't just anybody or somebody that was raised from the dead. It was Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be the unique Son of God, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the divine human Son of Man predicted by the prophet Daniel, whose crucifixion was instigated by the Jewish authorities for his allegedly blasphemous claims to stand in God's place. If this man has been raised by God from the dead, then God has unambiguously and dramatically confirmed the truth of those allegedly blasphemous claims. In other words, Jesus really was who he claimed to be. And what that means is that Jesus holds the key that unlocks the door to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. 
Uh, and therefore, through Jesus, we can have the hope of uh, life beyond the grave, of eternal life in relationship with God. And that is tremendously significant, I think, for our lives today. Yeah, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is a John 11 pericope with uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And that little uh, interchange he has with Martha is just really fascinating because she actually, to reinforce what you've said earlier in our conversation, um, she actually reinforces the Jewish idea of resurrection because yeah. Jesus tells her, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, you know, well, I know he'll raise in the last day, you know. Yeah. And yet here is this first century rabbi, kind of itinerant preacher, who looks back at her and makes this claim, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And the one who lives because of me will never die. And I think that, you know, you hear someone say something like that and he, he actually asks her, which I think is a great question. Do you believe this? And she, she does. She, she says, I've, I've come to believe you're the Holy One of God. And, and then when he is resurrected, then you have someone who, who was persecuting the Christians write down something as profound as Romans 1.4, where Paul says, Jesus Christ was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And so all those things you said, um, that Jesus is the key, he is the way to uh, eternal life, he actually is the resurrection. Even though when you weigh all of the facts and you look at them, it can sound and be almost unbelievable, except like we've talked about, we have really good reasons to believe that Jesus not only is resurrected, but is alive and well today. And that not only is he alive, but he actually dwells in his people by his spirit. And so I would just encourage you guys, as you're listening to this today, we've tried to give you, with the help of our friend, really good reasons to be confident in the resurrected Christ. The master that we serve is not dead, but is very much alive and is moving, uh, bringing in the kingdom. So Bill, thank you very much, man, for your time, your expertise, the way you've disciplined yourself for the purpose of godliness and the way that you serve the Big C Church and the way that you've served us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Nathan. Absolutely. Well, catch us next time. But until then, you guys have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you like what you heard, then subscribe and tell your friends. And if you have any questions or comments or anything else, please email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Bye. Peace.